This episode of Modern Bonsai is brought to you by TheBonsaiDojo.com. The Bonsai Dojo is Bonsai-N's newest online learning platform where you can learn bonsai with set structured curriculums which makes learning bonsai easier. Head on over to www.TheBonsaiDojo.com to check out the beginner's course that is currently available and keep an eye out on our social media platforms as we begin launching new courses all the time. Modern Bonsai listeners, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Evan and Mark from Underhill Bonsai Nursery in Folsom, Louisiana. This episode is just three guys sitting down and talking bonsai, shooting from the hip. There will be a part two for this episode over on Evan and Mark's podcast, which is called Bonsai Southeast. So go check it out. All right, so for the listeners of the Modern Bonsai podcast, do you just want to, both of you, give a quick introduction to yourselves um, and maybe the operation that you're running there? Because I know that you are, you know, running a business, Underhill Bonsai, um, and just let everybody know, you know, how you got into bonsai and how you've got to the point where you are now. Yeah, uh, so my name is Evan Pardue. I manage Underhill Bonsai in Folsom, Louisiana, uh, United States. I don't know if that's, I mean, I have a lot of international listeners, I'm sure, uh, or from around the world. But uh, yeah, this it's a, a small operation. Uh, when I say small, we're on 10 acres, but we're, we're still relatively a small operation at the moment. Uh, me managing the place and uh, Mark here is a contributing uh I guess you can say bonsai artist or uh, bonsai guy, but uh, yeah, it it more or less is uh, more of a bonsai nursery in the aspect of we grow material, uh, we concentrate a lot on collecting material like Yamadori stock, um, and then from there we're trying our best to kind of get more interactive. Uh, obviously, doing a podcast like this, uh, having YouTube channel. Uh, type content like uh, doing video series and also doing a monthly live stream service uh, and like, inter, you know, instructional type stuff there. Um, as far as me going into bonsai early, I, I hate getting this question. I mean, it's a good question to start it up, but uh, everyone's everyone's first introduction into their, I guess their bonsai journey uh, I don't have like a really amazing one. Like for some people, uh, you know, maybe their father did it or, or something along those lines, or they stumbled across one. I mean, the, uh, the earliest memories I can have, I have of, uh, of bonsai. I mean, I guess I saw one in a skateboard shop one time. That's like the earliest memory I have of it. And it always kind of intrigued me as a child, of course, the karate kid. And then you see him pop up every once in a while, um, in other forms of media, like movies and shows like that. But, uh, but I mean, there, there are a couple of bonsai professionals in my area that, uh, that I went on my way to meet and to kind of learn the gist of how to, uh, how to basically start actually doing bonsai because everybody has that beginner phase. There's a fly in here. Everybody has that beginner's phase whenever you're just going out and buying just a bunch of plants and you don't really know which direction you're going with it. But, uh, but after seeing, I think what it really took 
uh, for me to start doing and practicing real bonsai was uh, I met a local guy here and he had, he has the, or had the collection that was Louisiana's collection, like all the bald cypresses you could ever ask for as just amazing specimen trees. Uh, even some that have gone to uh, Washington DC to be in the uh, Arboretum um, up there and seeing real quality bonsai in person is what really kickstarted my journey into it. It was just like, okay, if this guy can do it and I'm seeing it and it's a lot more like I can imagine it and I can see it in person, then it's, it's real to me and I can do that, you know? So, um, and I mean, I've, I've, I've gone a couple of different routes with it there. Um, like this, for instance, like this past, this past season, um, we went to the national show here in the United States. Uh, have you heard of the U S national expedition? Yeah. Up in Rochester, uh, New York. Yep. We actually, uh, put a tree in that show and then we didn't get the vendor. I would love to vendor it, uh, hopefully in the near future. But uh, that that also is another huge step there. That's that's a lot of fun to uh, prep trees at that level and uh, and then just take it back home and, you know, internalize that. And, you know, it just makes it makes it that much better. Um, but other than that, I, you know, just reaching out and talking to other people and uh, interacting with the community is I mean, that's most of the reason why I got into this in the first place. But now it's been enriched by, you know, the world of the Internet. Like right now, me and you talking, I mean. You couldn't ask for a better bonsai community like this. So, yeah. Uh, but I'll let Mark kind of take it over too. Oh, mine's just pretty basic how I got into it. I watched The Karate Kid and I was just obsessed since you know, I was like six years old. And uh, I wish I would have stuck with it consistently, but I didn't. But I've, I've been doing it a while. And uh, I guess the last four or five years is when I really honed in on, you know, doing it right and doing it serious. Because before I just used to, you know, I just wanted a tree. So yeah, I didn't care how I did it. And like now I'm like really like doing, trying to do everything about a book. And, you know, I like to experiment a lot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, the, the whole Karate Kid thing, it, it's interesting. Um, in the last episode I did of the podcast, we spoke about this a little bit. But when people first get into bonsai, there's that innocence and that magic that you see from any tree, whether whether the tree's horrible or the tree's fantastic, you get the same feeling and you get that same magic from, you know, from bonsai. And then once you move into the world of bonsai and start practicing, um, you know, like you mentioned before, the bonsai community, I think bonsai as a hobby is half a hobby of art and horticulture and half a social hobby because, you know, you go to clubs, you go to workshops, meetings, all that kind of thing, you know, you just have the time of your life and everybody in bonsai is just down to earth and, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's very few, you know, now and then, you know, on the internet um, forums and Facebook pages, you might come across somebody who's, you know, a bit of a troll every now and then, but that's just the internet. That, that's got more to do with the internet than it does <laughs> anything else. Um, that's just the nature of it. But if you actually go to to clubs and shows and demonstrations and all those kind of things, you know, the, there's something about the people that also captivate you, you know, as much as the trees do. And, you know, like mm. you said, with the internet, being able to do podcasts such as this one and, you know, the one that you guys do and uh, YouTube, um, you know, we do a lot of great stuff on YouTube. And, you know, as I mentioned before we started this to you guys, we do um, – live classes with people all around the world 
Um, so we were doing our master classes. So we do beginners classes and intermediate, um, and we ran some like uh, black pine courses and things like that. Um, and I do one-on-one -on -one Zoom sessions with people, and yeah, it's just it's really cool to meet all these people from around the world that practice bonsai, and then you know every everybody practices it differently. You know, like you guys, where you are focusing mainly on bald cypress which is becoming one of my new favorite trees to work on. <laughs> oh yeah. You got, uh, you guys have any access to any of them out there? It sounds like you do, huh? Well, not so much growing in the wild. So you guys are really lucky because, you know, in Australia, when we look at you guys in terms of Yamadori, we're just green with envy because oh, here in Australia, me, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, well, here in Australia, we've got Australian natives that we can collect, mm. but, there's a lot of restriction with that because they are our natives and they're very mm. heavily protected, you know, by the powers that be here. The only place that you could really collect natives from is off private properties um, and mm. things like that. But a lot of the time, private properties don't have that good of trees. Um, you know, every, every now and then you might find a really good tree that's been, um, you know, pruned and kept under wraps by cows and things like cattle and yeah. that that gives you a really thick tapered base and whatnot but a lot of the time our good trees are out in the national parks and you know where we can't collect where you guys man they just seem to be everywhere like junkers yeah. and bald cypress and stuff it's like uh you're saying there's like the restrictions and all i mean the bald cypress is definitely protected in in most areas around here but because of its widespread, I mean, a lot of the stuff we do pull is ethically uh, sourced. So like, like you said, somebody's property, but I mean, these, they're, they get so big so fast and then they'll grow the, the knees and the fluting and everything that you would want on them. And uh, it's kind of funny. You said you have the envy of like Yamadori collection from us. I'm like, I'm thinking about the guys in the Rockies and the, you know, the, the mountainous areas here where they get the really awesome junipers and stuff. We don't get any of that. But uh, but I have to always step back and say, you know what, bald cypress is a great species. Um, I just it's like get I've gotten so much of it that every once in a while I can get a little burned out on that species and have to step back and you know wanting to do other things. So there are other great species here to work with, such as like maples and elms and stuff, and even a couple of conifers, but not that. There's far in between conifers and stuff. And a lot of the Yamadori you were talking about, like the. Rocky Mountain junipers and stuff like they're getting. Uh, we can't keep them here, believe it or not. So yeah, yeah. No, well, so, we, we we like way down south, and it's they won't survive. Yeah. So we kind of envious of that too. But uh, as far as um, Australian natives, I think the only one, and if I sound naive, this is just because of what I've been told. The bottle brush tree. Yep. Is it, yeah, Western. that's from you guys. Okay. So uh, I've actually seen a couple of y'all's bottle brush trees and I, I, they actually grow in the ground here in Louisiana very well. They get huge here, but I don't know what they're like in Australia. Yeah, so uh, all our natives are pretty much the, the same in terms of growth patterns and things like that. There are some outliers, but the one thing that we're super lucky with here with our natives is when we do grow them, they grow fast. Like mm. they they absolutely pump and they grow just uh, uh, it's hard to explain like if you've ever grown like a shimpaku or a maple 
um, anything like that, you know how painstakingly slow they grow. Yeah. And, you know, each season is just like a tiny little bit of progress. But with an Australian native, you get, you know, say you get like a, a sapling, just a little tiny pencil thing. You grow that for a season and then next season it's like round. And then yeah. you, you slip pot that up into the next pot and then the next season it's like got a trunk like this, you know. And yeah. they, just, they just get bigger and bigger and the more you let them grow and the more you chop them, just the more they go crazy and um, just the amount of foliage that they put on every year. But in Australia, we're still, we're still very new to our own species because when we work on black pine here or juniper, elms maples we're decades ahead of the work that we can do on those trees so we we pretty much fully understand black pine and decandling and bud selection needle plucking um you know what they can and can't handle fertilization pot size soil mediums everything like that we've got all that under wraps it's in all the books it's on all the youtube channels you've mm. the only thing you've got to work out is your environment and how it reacts maybe a little bit differently maybe you've got to do decandling you know at a different time or whatever it may be you've just got to figure that out for yourself but when it comes to the australian natives you know bonsai is a relatively new art in australia um you know going back to maybe like the 70s 80s when it first started becoming really popular mm. um and it may have been practiced before then but not as widespread and then it wasn't until further along where natives started getting used more than, you know, exotic species such as black pine, maples, elms, all that kind of stuff. Preferred so, species, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here we're really, we're basically beginners when it comes to Australia. I mean, we've got some really nice natives here. Um, so some of the artists that are making natives, they're, they're doing a fantastic job, but the understanding of those trees is you know, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, That's I, the same thing that happened here. We, we're just like 50 years ahead, I guess, because like it was in the well, 70s that it happened. Yeah, you mentioned with in, the natives. You mentioned in that the uh, the interest in bonsai in Australia came like around. But like, do you, is there anywhere you, you could tell from like older clubs in, in y'all's area? Like what like? Well, really I mean, I'm. You know, I might be naive to it just to what I know personally, but the the first real core, you know, people in Bonsai in Australia were um, the Koroshoffs. And I do know that they were practicing Bonsai in the 50s, okay? Because they, they, they had some seeds um, that they had planted. Um, mm. I believe they were Japanese red pine seeds. Um, that they had planted, and there's still a few of those trees that are getting around here in Australia today. Um, that's awesome. So I, I do know for a fact that that's when they were practicing, but whether or not it was widespread popular then, I'm not sure. So, uh, yeah, and obviously beforehand there was probably some activity before that, but I'm just not sure how far back it goes here. Yeah, we had – we had a couple of guys back in the early sixties and seventies that were like right whenever the club in new Orleans, uh, started 
they were already calling it like pioneering of the bald cypress designs and stuff was happening at that time. And so I would say we have a pretty uh, good grasp of uh, our natives and there. I feel like there's still a couple of other natives to be weeded out uh, pun, pun intended, because there's, there are some natives here. People just overlook cause they consider them to be crap or uh garbage bin trees. Chinese tallow. The Chinese tallow is not a native tree. I, I will, uh, I will carry that <laughs> to my grave, but Mark is going to try to prove me wrong one day that he's going to make a t- Chinese tallow that's worth anything. But anyway, I, I'm a, I'm a environmentalist type person and any kind of invade, that's a highly aggressive invasive uh, plant here. I don't know, uh, invasive plant. I don't know if you guys have, uh, invasives like that. Have you ever heard of Chinese tallow? I haven't heard of them, but we've got a similar thing here. Uh, we've got privets. Yep. It's kind of like and that. We, uh, I mean, we're, we've got three acres here uh, at Bonsai N, and one and a half acres of that is privets. <laughs> yeah. It's that, that privet. We've got the same thing. It's like the Chinese privet. The Chinese tallow is this awful tree that uh, germinates like with thousands. Beautiful, beautiful fall color. <laughs> Awful tree with beautiful fall color. Yeah, they call it a popcorn tree because it makes these lovely little white uh, looking seed bodies on them. But, dude, they destroy the environment. They were brought in by early traveler, like earlier European uh, gardeners. So, but anyway, that's that's just that's a whole other topic. I could rant all day long about my hatred for that species. But, uh, but anyway, let's talk about species that we actually like. So. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I would say the bald cypress, we've had a good edge on it for a while. I, my aim has, has been recently on collecting. So I want to, I want to do a lot more field research on the aftercare of Yamadori, or uh, I guess you'd say swamp collecting here, um, which I feel like can definitely be a lot more fine tuned. Um, so I guess that's kind of like the second goal besides running the nursery. Obviously I want the nursery to be uh, successful. Uh, but I've, I've been a lot more invested in, uh, natives and, and making, not just taking the bald cypress out of the ground and making it seem so easy, but there's so much more highly technical things you can do with that species, um, that the world really needs to see. Um, but yeah, a lot of us are still experimenting with, uh, encouraging knee growth. Yep. Like the, the cypress knees and, uh, that's. It's happening on a... Yeah, I think it's because of a high amount of moisture. One thing I wanted to ask you, Josh, about your bald cypresses there, what do you you guys see as far as size in those trees? Um, Like, I guess the the bigger ones that I've seen, um, because a lot of ours are grown from seed, um, Mm -hmm. because as I said, we, we don't just go and find them Real, I mean, we, went, we may do, but certainly not in my area, at least. Um, so my experience with them is quite young at this moment. I've only had, I've got one in my collection and that's it. And I've had it for three or four years now, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just grew, I, I bought it as nursery stock. Um, so I'll tell you about that one first. And then I'll tell you about somebody that I know who's much more experienced with them. Um, so the one that I bought, I basically bought it in, um, an eight inch pot and slip potted it up and it, it grew like crazy, um, in my area and basically just classic bonsai. I just grew it, grew it all the way up and let the, the trunk thicken. And to begin with my, 
main goal with that tree was similar to the trees that you've got behind them. Very straight trunk um, and then just very broad branching. Um, so basically your typical formal upright style. Um, mm-hmm. But what I eventually end up doing was the main trunk that grew up, I chopped it right back um, and started from a new leader and then started putting movement in it and training it as an informal upright tree. Um, and you, you can actually see that tree on my YouTube channel. I did a, a video earlier in the season where I took it out of the, the black plastic nursery pot and the whole aim for that video was I wanted to show people that a lot of the time when you get nursery stock and you're doing root work on nursery stock, always start from the top. Because I, I see a lot of the time that people, when they work on bonsai, especially beginners, they'll pull it out of the, the black plastic nursery pot and start working from the bottom up to get it into a bonsai pot. But the reason that I wanted to use a bald cypress or swamp cypress, as we call them here, um, is because they're really well known for having just a bucket of gold underneath the underneath yeah. the soil. You, you dig down underneath that soil surface, and it just keeps going, and it gets wider, and it gets bigger, and it gets gnarlier. And mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough that in that video, that particular tree just turned out absolute gold underneath the soil surface, and um, I end up taking pretty much all all the soil off it and planting it in a bonsai pot and it's interesting you know you're talking about trying to make the the knees more popular and stuff what i end up doing with that tree was even though it has a base that went right down into the bonsai pot and i kept a lot of um fine roots around the bottom further up there's a lot of what i guess you can call them aerial roots now which is kind of how they look coming from you know, probably a third of the way up the tree down into the bonsai pot, and then you've got mm-hmm. the base in the middle. So at the moment, I'm in two minds of whether once the tree grows, whether I cut all those aerial roots off and just keep the base or actually use those aerial roots and knees as a feature on the tree, um, which is something that I haven't decided yet. The tree will, the tree will tell me what it wants to do as we, yeah. as we keep moving forward. But... In terms of sizing and stuff for trees, I've I've got a friend of mine. Um, he owns uh, it's probably the biggest bonsai nursery in Australia, probably easily. Um, mm. He's got about sixty thousand to one hundred thousand trees on the block. Um, Ten to th- fifteen thousand pots, um, and he's got a massive big collection out the back. And at one point, he had a similar setting as you've got behind you there, which was just a bunch of swamp cypress on a slab making a forest, um, which looked really nice. But then he decided he was going to go bigger and better, and he built a massive suey barn. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what a suey barn is. Hmm. I haven't but, heard that word before. So a suey barn is a holeless pot. So it's basically a landscape pot that's got no holes in it. Mm. Um, and what he did is he built this massive, massive big wooden suey barn um, and he filled it with water and he's got 48, 48 swamp cypress in there with trunks that are <laughs> like this. Oh, wow. There's, yeah. there's 48 of them in there. And 
he's got goldfish swimming around the water so it actually looks like a big big swamp and he's got goldfish in there that swim around the root systems and and just oh man th- this thing i'll have to send you a photo of it one time um, yeah definitely and they're they're probably some of the biggest swamp cypress that i've seen here um probably nothing compared to what you guys have got over there collected naturally um yeah. But there are quite a lot of people here who are starting to get, and they're becoming a very, very popular species here. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that y'all have them that big. I mean, can y'all can y'all grow them in the ground? That that works for y'all. We don't grow them in the ground. We grow them in water. Interesting. So, so they, so they don't go into if, a field growing process at all. Y'all just grow them straight up in water all the time. Well, basically, um, there is something that I want to try because I did an interesting experiment, not on purpose, quite a while ago, um, and I'd like to try it with the swamp cypress. But usually what we do is if, we, if we've got them in a black plastic nursery pot, we'll put that pot in a body of water, mm-hmm. and, and they will just absolutely pump and grow um, like that. I guess it kind of somewhat represents their natural environment, um, especially in our Australian summers here. There's a, a lot of trees that will grow like that because it gets so hot and arid here that putting them in that water just keeps them happy throughout the summer period. Um, but there, there was one point where I had a bunch of um, bunch of nursery stock just growing in black plastic containers and what ended up happening is they were in in a lower section of the property and we end up getting um, lots of floods okay and and the water come through and it basically we had a bunch of melaleuca trees um i don't know if you guys have heard of them but they're they're our paper bark tree here okay um and basically when the flood come in it covered all of the melaleucas above the pot um Mm -hmm. And I, I had some of them sitting in like a big container. And once the flood water subsided, the water stayed in the container and it still kept those melaleucas covered as if they were in a flood. And after the floods and that finished, I never emptied out any of those containers, but I came through and mowed and all the grass clippings actually went into those containers and sunk into that water. And what I'm thinking happened was there was a breakdown of nitrogen into the water and it just fed those trees and the growth and the thickening within i want to say two months i i had wire around these trees and the wire disappeared it completely the trees swelled and there was no wire on them like i'm looking and i was like where did that wire go it completely just ate the wire on these trees and i'd like to try and replicate that same thing with a swamp cypress where i put it in a body of water fill it up with grass clippings and just see how crazy it grows if it you know if we can get because already they grow well in water we know that so the next thing is is to throw those grass clippings in there and see what happens yeah i think uh, that wouldn't be a bad idea um i mean even like your 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 fellow uh nurseryman over there that has the the goldfish in there i think that's yep. interesting because uh i've even recommended to people who keep their cypresses in water that they because you had like for instance like mark had a koi pond yeah. keeping cypress in yeah and every time 
my cypress start to look a little sick or anything's going on or like they weren't getting enough water, sprinkler failed. I throw them in my koi pond and they just bounce back like really quick. And I leave them in air, let them get back in health and pull them out. Uh, yeah, this it's definitely the, the fish. Tons product. of nitrogen. In there. The fish by like some of them koi are like three feet and uh, there's a couple thousand fish in there. Yeah. So it, it feeds the nitrogen is ridiculous. So it, it definitely has something to do with that. But um, I don't know. I'm. It's kind of hard for me because I'm. I'm really back and forth on. Do we grow bald cypresses in, in water? Uh, do we let them be more of a traditionally watered uh, bonsai tree? And I'm always under debate on that because it. They like it either way, I guess. Like they. Yeah, they're, they're fine, fine with, with it. it either way. But I think with the more water, the like you said, uh, with your situation more nitrogen, more pumping, more, you know, and we don't want the wire to bite in it for it to eat the wire and stuff because then uh, you can really mess up your tool when you go clip off that branch or something later is unexpected wire stuck in there or you get a telephone cord uh, branch or something, something along those lines. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. Like this is the kicker I found with that. Internode length. Internode length. Leaf size. So like in the water, your leaves, they're going to look healthier. They're going to look greener than what they would in a pot with regular bonsai soil. Mm-hmm. But your leaf reduction and your nodes, your node length is better in the soil itself, like out yeah. of the water. Obviously, when we talk about nitrogen control, like uh, my brain instantly goes to like, once we're not submerging it all the time, then we're talking about organic fertilizers and yeah, slowing yeah. it down and pinching the ends so that we can get actual back budding on the shoots. Cause I mean, bald cypress is something, it's, it, it's something else. It's a magical species. I mean, every single frond on that tree, every little leaf that it's not a compound leaf, every single piece of that leaf can become a new branch. Yeah. And that once you unlock that, like you, you pinch out the end of that. Yeah. Just any of them. Once you pinch that, that tip off of there, all yeah. of this could become branching. And that once you find that out, man, it just, it evolves your whole aspect on this tree. And so, yeah, if you're always water growing them, um, you're just always gonna get that really ridiculous push of growth. And I don't know, I shouldn't really get off on a tangent too much. Cause I mean, that's another thing. Um, we're going for hours. About. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well that mean, I mean, it's when we talk about water growing, that's obviously a development process. I mean, yeah, that's one of those things in bonsai. You've always got to separate development from refinement because yeah. obviously, you know, like you said before with inner node length, leaf size and everything, once you've grown that swamp cypress or any tree for that matter to the size that you want it, the quicker you can get it there, the better. I mean, that can be argued as well because the slower you grow a tree, the more age it looks like it has. But if you're trying to grow big trees fast, that's a way to get them there. And then once you've got them there, you know, you cut them back, you put them in inorganic substrate, you start really controlling that Mm -hmm. nitrogen so you don't get that elongation of nodes and leaves and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you can really start concentrating, you know, on that process. That That's why with my cypress that I have, I grew it. Mine was grown in water the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. my, mine was kept in a body, body of water the whole time. And then it was cut, new leader grown. And then once that leader kind of tapered out to where it looked like it belonged on the tree, that's when... I went ahead, did the root work in a bonsai pot, Akadama pumice. Mm. Um, and now as the tree sits, 
we've just come in, well, we're just about to come into summer, um, where we are now. Um, but basically the, the trees had its spring growth. It was allowed to flush, harden off, and then I've cut it back now. So and basically at the moment it looks, it's got like a really nice base to the tree. It's got some really nice first branching, but it looks very bare bones. Mm. Next season, I'm going to really start working on building out that pad structure, but it's going to be a very, very looking different swamp cypress because it's been traditionally styled as a bonsai rather than that natural straight up approach that we usually take. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if you guys call that style that you know, like the trees behind us, what, uh, what we call it here is the flat top bald cypress kind of ordeal. I don't know if you call it, if y'all call that. Um, cause I mean, obviously in Australia, y- y'all are not going to see that in nature. Um, but, um, that's really indicative of what they do here. That kind of skeletal look that you're talking about, which yep. most of the time that looks great. Um, but it has to be done correctly. It can't be like a bar branch or a T branch coming off the top. Um, but one of the things that, uh, I noticed just now when you said, you said you're coming into summertime. Yep. Okay. See, I, I, I had to like, my brain had to kind of backtrack for a second. So seasonally for you guys, where are you at? Where are y'all right now? Like what's coming, what time of year have y'all kind of in? Cause I mean, we're, we're going into winter right now. That's why it was kind of weird for me to hear. Yeah. So we're exactly opposite to you guys. So when you're in summer, we're in winter. I did not so, know that. <laughs> yeah. That's so nice. Northern hemisphere, Southern hemisphere. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. if only I listened to geography class, this wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened to me just now, but, uh, so, so yeah, we're in spring, you're in autumn and then yep. we're in summer, you're in winter, we're in autumn, you're in spring. Yeah. That's, that's nuts, man. I didn't think about it like that. So what, Cypress cuttings take really well. I don't yeah. know if y'all will worry about that, but <laughs> sorry, I'm still laughing about the seasonal oh. thing. I was just like warping my brain around <laughs> if it. You anyway, produce a little more. You don't have to grow for seed. Yeah, uh, I guess. I guess the what I was trying to lead into the whole seasonal change thing instead of just like getting like completely brain farted on that and just sitting here in awe. Um, I was wondering if you guys get like a true like nice fall color on y'all's uh, bald cypress over there. Uh, yeah, but here's the here's the kicker. Some years we lose the leaves, some years we don't. Mm, okay. So it, it's not always a given. So this year, my tree didn't drop a single leaf. Interesting. Okay, so they do yeah. that in Florida. Yeah. But he's not tropical, though. Josh's no. climate, yeah. We're, 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 a, we're a temperate kind of environment. So mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not hot, we're not cold. And we're really lucky here because we have nine full months of growing. So yeah. f- from, from spring till the end of autumn, we're growing. And then into winter, um, we, we really don't have a winter here. Where I live, there are parts of Australia where they get super cold, they get snow. But mm. where I live in Australia, we're lucky to get down to five degrees Celsius, which for you guys, I'm not sure what that is. It's probably around 25 degrees, something like, well, probably even higher, probably. Yeah, I think. So what's freezing for y'all? Zero? Zero, yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's how Celsius works. It's probably like forty five degrees was Fahrenheit. I mean we get we get um, a very, very like super medium yeah. winter. We, we get about ten months of growing too. 
Yeah, we still yeah. getting buds. Like some of the maples and even some of the cypress got new buds on them right now. We're in. I think we're on the same level pretty much as far as that goes. Yeah. So I was so like, it sounds like here, the same. Sitting here being like, how is he getting bald cypresses that yeah. grow so well for him? Now it makes so much more like sense. Like with now. the black pine, we get five flush. Oh my gosh. Five yeah. Flush. Do you so guys yeah, get yeah. lucky on y'all's black pines as well? No, we only get two flushes. Okay. Um, the further north you go, you may get an extra flush. Okay. Yeah, we got but like they are double flush. They're naturally double flush, right? Yeah, they're naturally so double we, flush. We getting, yeah. We're getting five, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know what makes them do that, but I, you can go out there and count because every time you have a Japanese black pine and you look at where the whorls of that previous uh, candle e- extension was, that's where we where we've been counting them, and like we have like a year and a half old seedlings that we've grown, and they have five rings of whorls that they've set each time. I mean, they're tall now; they're not enormous by any means, but uh, yeah, I just because you you grow up in bonsai, first getting into Japanese black pine, and you hear about the candling process and all that, and the time of year you're supposed to do it in, and then you grow them in your given area, like we're we're here, and you're just, I mean, it doesn't apply. I mean, no. it's just, it doesn't make any sense um, because our growing season is long like you guys as well. Yeah, I, I guess we're lucky like that because there's other places, you know, um, like in Canada, they've got hardly any growing season, you know? Yeah. I don't and even know how bonsai clubs yeah. or anybody does they're anything the, there. They got some nice deciduous up there. Though. Like uh, That's what I'm, I'm wondering. Like, how are they getting all that like, growth with, like, one month, one to two months of growing season, and they're getting these beautiful deciduous maples. And like, yeah, they just got that window pulling it off, man. Yeah, it, it's crazy. That it must be frustrating as somebody who wants to practice bonsai, and you get such little, such little growing time every year, and such a heavy kind of dormant period. You know, I, I hate three months of winter here when we don't even go fully dormant here. Um, mm. Like I had a tried maple this year, didn't lose a single leaf. Um, and, you know, even that three months of slowed down production is frustrating. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, do you guys have to run like a greenhouse or anything over there to keep up with any t- uh, different species? Um, I mean, um, I can think of just tropical species that we deal with here. Not so much. So the only tropical species that I've got in my collection personally is um, three ficus. And that's it. We've got a uh, tiger bark. Um, and Benjamina, and actually, I think two of them are tiger bark, and one of them is a Benjamina. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't have to protect those trees until it gets under five degrees Celsius. And yep. like mentioned before, we're lucky to hit five degrees Celsius. So I think this this winter that just went, I brought my tree in maybe two or three nights out of the whole three months. Oh yeah. That's good times. Yeah, last year I I have a lot of bougainvillea, and uh, yep. ficus and stuff. Last year was it last year? Yeah, before I didn't bring my trees in at all. Yeah, yeah, like it didn't. It never got below forty five. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it was the year that just passed. We had some bad uh, well, freezes. We oh, let's not talk about the weather again. Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing we joke about <laughs> on our podcast on our particular. Uh, uh, series of episodes thus far we always sit here and we bring up this <laughs> winter storm that happened this past year in the united states and it and it swept from 
oh, was it from uh, West? Came from West over Texas, and then it hit yeah. Louisiana, and it devastated Texas. And then I'm like, we can't talk about the weather all the time. <laughs> yeah. But it, I mean, that's basically what we're doing here. That's what we're <laughs> talking about growing trees. I had, we had to worry about that kind of stuff, yeah, man. We're, and we old men too. So yeah, we're we're not that old, man. I am. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't beat yourself <laughs> up over that. But but anyway, yeah. Uh, we're suffering the same thing here, like in Australia. Um, last summer we didn't really have a summer because um, mm. we we had um, what was called a La Nina, so it was just wet the whole the whole summer, and the temperatures didn't really get up. We didn't have much sunshine, um, and the year before that we had the opposite. It was so hot that we were put on water restrictions mm. because because our reserves for our, our drinking water and our town water got so low, most of our reserves got down to about 20%. Um, so we were put on water restrictions. It was so damn hot. And, you know, it's funny because in, in the area where we were, um, everybody's on water restrictions. They were told that they couldn't, um, they couldn't water with a hose unless it had an, uh, like an on and off nozzle on it, like a, a squeeze handle. Mm-hmm. Um, we were limited to, to two minute showers. Um, you couldn't wash your, you couldn't wash your car. There was all these restrictions. So all these people around us, are you know, having to limit their showers and everything. And then you come past our place and it's just all these big sprinklers. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, did, did people go over there and like have something to say about it? Or you're just like, Hey man, bonsai trees. Don't, don't give me a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, nobody said anything about it. Um, you know, okay. you, you could you could hear it and see it from a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But uh, so I'm I'm not losing my trees to you know to stupid water restrictions. Uh, yeah, we have that problem when hurricanes. Oh with yeah, salt man. water and then they'll shut the water off. Especially where Mark's at, yeah. uh, saltwater intrusion after a big storm. Like we just had. I don't know if you've seen it. Probably heard it um maybe uh hurricane ida just came through and that that did some really yeah. some real reckoning um and i'm sorry to bring it up no it's fine on you mark i don't have any like ptsd i'm, yeah. I'm used to it. yeah uh mark's flooding and mark's town actually got affected having my houses just ripped to pieces and starting you know it's, yeah. it's it's i'm used to it but anyway like we have stuff like that happen um so but yeah you know the bonsai trees have to survive but <laughs> In certain circumstances, they, you know, not so lucky, but yeah. I think that everybody that gets into bonsai, they go through that heartache at one point or another because, you know, as you guys know, like I've had it here multiple times. There's been times where suddenly the wind just picks up and mm. like it just, it roars through the place and you're sitting there looking at all the trees like bending over and you're like, oh, because all, all my trees here, they're all tied down on the benches. I've, I learned that lesson a long time ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm like, I'm having a laugh along with you, dude. Cause I'm like thinking about those days we're next to a highway and there, and I mean, we're right in the line of sight of wind, high winds over here. It's like a wind tunnel next to the building sometimes. And I'm just, I'm just thinking back about like the first year that I was here. Um, just imagining what people are seeing as they drive by. And there's this poor, just little guy running around trying to catch bonsai trees falling off of benches during like just one brisk windstorm that lasts five minutes um but that's that's the struggle man it's called the bonsai shuffle for a reason 
Well, we're, we're right on the coast here. So if you go down to our local beach right here where we are and jump in the water, you've left Australia. So <laughs> we've got... We've got no protection whatsoever. There's just, there's nothing. So the wind comes in off the sea and mm. we are the protection for everybody else. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Um, From the Gulf. We're Gulf not nearly like the, the, uh, the nursery is a lot more inland. So we don't get the effects of all that. And that was, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you about Sydney, man, is it's obviously it's windy. It's all out just windy out there. Like you don't see people walking around with umbrellas when it's raining. It's probably silly to do that, right? Yeah. So where we are here, we're actually about three hours north of Sydney. Okay. Um, where the nursery is here. But I mean, it's the same the whole way along the coast. Like Sydney's the same. Like you go to Sydney Harbour and you're basically looking off the edge of Australia um, mm. along this east coast here. But yeah, we do... We get a lot of a lot of strong winds. Um, we don't get um, hurricane type winds. We're we're lucky in that fact. Um, so you guys would probably see our wind and laugh like that's not even wind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, we're super lucky in that kind of aspect. That the the really big thing that we get here, which is scary, is bushfires. So. You know, being in Australia, we have a lot of bushland. And one thing that's impacted us over the last, you know, few years is we get all these woke people, you know, and, and they're, they're so woke about the bushland that they're like, oh, you shouldn't be burning off in the bushland. And, you know, usually we would have our rural fire service, they'd come through and they'd light the understory on fire and they'd let it run and they'd follow it and kind of, put it out as it burns, they wouldn't let it get out of control. But the problem is our gum leaves, when they drop, they're full of oil. Mm. So if we don't burn them off, you get years and years and years and the understory just builds up and you get this massive layer of just dry foliage and plants and everything. You get one tiny little spark or whatever in there and it lights that place up and there's no stopping it. And like we seen two years ago in Australia here, it just – it lit up and we couldn't stop it. Mm. And yeah, we, just... we lost, I think we lost something like 50 to 60% of our koala population. Oh, um, yeah, and uh, just I couldn't tell you how much, you know, bushland we lost through those fires because it just took off and there's no stopping it then. Mm. Wow. We, we, you know, that, that's one thing we ain't got to worry about is fire. This is so wet here. I mean, to each his yeah, own in their national yeah. disasters, I guess. You make yeah, it sound so much more terrifying. <laughs> that is that's, that's more terrifying than a hurricane, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if, if it ever comes near the nursery, you'll see me out there with my little Japanese water and one trying to fight off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. Because, I mean, there was uh, there were there have been fires in, like, northwest united states where they've had issues yeah around california stuff yeah but nothing like i'm actually a question that i hate when people ask me did you ever use a rainbow eucalyptus as material not really um i don't use it well i don't use a lot of eucalyptus at all but um you know it's funny i did a one-on-one zoom uh, session with a student couple of weeks ago and he had one of them and we were doing some work on it and stuff like that but yeah not something that's commonly used here um not 
at least not in my circle of, of bonsai enthusiasts and whatnot. Um, once again, it's still one of those things that people are early on experimenting with. Um, you know, they are out there. Um, but, you know, given that bonsai is still something that's relatively early on here, um, people are still obsessed with black pines, maples, junipers, mm. and all those kind of things. I don't know about you guys, but I'm the type of person that when I practice, I usually go real deep on one species at a time and try mm. and learn a lot about that. So I first started out with junipers um, and then I started really working on um, tea trees here and learning a lot about them and then moved on to black pines. Um, and then there's a few other species here that I dabble in, such as elms and maples and things like Maples are really hard for us to keep here because we get a lot of hot wind. Mm. So those, those really fine, you know, leaves, those really soft, supple leaves, they burn really easily. And then you've got to move the trees in, into protection because then you get trunk, bur uh, trunk burn. Yep. So, yeah. But, yeah, and eucalypt is something that people here really want to learn a lot about. Um, there has been a lot of people, you know, who's, you know, shouting out, like, who's done this and, you know, is there any advice on it? But it's not something that's really widespread as yet. Mm -hmm. I guess, why would you ask me about it, the eucalyptus? Because it, is it, yeah, there, was a pic, there was a picture of one on the internet and it, like, blew up. So, like, everybody. Yeah. Oh, you're that talking about like, hey, you ever use the rainbow eucalyptus? You're talking about uh, Mimi bon bonsai. The meme? The meme bonsais. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just wondering if it was a thing down there because I know that's native to y'all. Uh, I don't know. I've never I mean, seen it is it. a pretty cool tree. Yeah. I mean, with with the bark, with all the different colors and stuff yeah. in it. And, it really does and that, it, huh? <laughs> looks yeah, like yeah. melted crayons on a bark. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I've seen the pictures. I've seen the thing where it's like, the uh, online thing it's like buy eucalyptus seeds oh, here yeah. and it's buy like these, oh uh, great. Blue, blue maples i'm gonna get my i'm gonna get my dream bonsai <laughs> tree from seed right now but now um but yeah as far as you're saying with like concentration on species and stuff um yeah like i mentioned earlier i mean natives are kind of my jam right now and like preferred species like you're and were you talking about japanese maples you were saying that's kind of a struggle for you guys yeah, so we, we keep trident maple a lot better than we okay. keep Japanese maple because they're just a lot hardier against the elements than the Japanese. Japanese maples are crybabies, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from our experience here, um, same. same, yeah, because um, keeping them shaded is one thing. It, that seems to work out pretty well. But then, yeah, like you said, you got you guys said that, uh, that you have hot winds. I, yeah. I don't know. If, we have necessarily like we don't call it hot winds so i don't think it's to the extent that you're experiencing so uh i guess our, our just our heat waves and our high humidity is really what kind of yeah. cripples our japanese maples yeah and uh, the warm winters and our warm winters just yeah talking about that on the stream they'll jump out of dormancy a month early then have to yeah. you know go dormant they'll drop their leaves again and pop in and out and but when it's time to come out of dormancy for real they they don't have enough energy left and they'll, they'll weaken year after year. It'll get weaker and weaker. I mean, the, the trident is highly successful species for us here. And, uh, and I guess that like, like I was thinking in my head while we were talking about, you know, learning about different species and then concentrating on learning and everything. Uh, I guess my, uh, 
my methods a little bit more straightforward with like, what can I do to this tree before it gets pissed off and just, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't rebound from what I'm about to do to it. Like thinking about that trident maple that we, uh, we nearly popped its head um, off where we were trying to do uh we were I trying to do a wedge a, cut. A no, that that's that's a trident maple, that bigger tree out there. Oh yeah, yeah. We did we made the wedge cut uh in it. We were trying to get the we we're trying to get a 90 degree trunk to stand more upright. And I mean yep. we just we cracked that thing, but there's a little bit of cambium holding on and it's it's gonna bounce back. Like it yeah, well never even well drop a leaf. I used the technique <laughs> that a friend of mine showed me uh if you if you almost break a branch straight off of a trident or a highly vigorous deciduous tree like that, we just take like a uh, like a strip of soaking wet t-shirt, wrap it around that that wound site real good. I mean, it could be nearly severed. That's your cambium. No. Yeah, it makes up for the cambium layer there that that we completely destroyed, and then we wrap it in um, like an electrical tape and yep. secure it with wire, and you'd be surprised. I mean, it bounces right back. So. Um, I guess that's more of like pushing these trees to their limits. Cause like with the bald cypresses, I mean, dude, you can do almost anything to those guys. Um, you could bend like on this tree behind me, the trunk, like you probably have this experience too. Uh, trunks that are less than two, maybe three inches. You could still put some, some aggressive wire on that and bend it without even having to yep. put raffi on there. So. Yeah. And that, that's, um, it's funny cause wedge cuts, you know, we're still experimenting with what species, can take them and what can't you know we already know that ficus do really well with them and um pines um it, it's more of those trees that have the sap flow that mm. do well with the wedge cuts i don't think i mean i'm pretty sure nobody's ever had success doing wedge cuts on conifers um they, they'd probably fall over and die straight away yeah something like uh, um if you were going to do like just like you said like a juniper uh, wedge cut on that. I don't imagine that, but I mean, there, there are techniques. I but guess it, you, the cambium layer is like so detached from the wood. Mm -hmm. You, you just, it's just going to, yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen them blow out before, but, uh, I mean, if you raffia that stuff yeah, real heavily, raffia, you can yeah. bend a juniper, you can bend anything with enough well, raffia you, and wire. You do a lot of branch splitting with them. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah. Not the wedge cut itself. Yeah. yeah. Wedge cutting is something I've seen, uh, I've seen a lot more done on like podocarpus and you guys can probably get those pretty easy too. Um, but that, that's one of the things that's we, the main species for wedge good. Yeah. We experienced that with, uh, those podocarpus that were collected. We were talking about that earlier. We did another stream, uh, where we were talking about how, even though like, it seems like the, the live vein was disconnected, it somehow redirected that vein like yeah. laterally, like it came up the backside of the tree and where it was completely severed still kept, uh, that part of the tree alive so yeah the way yeah, so if, if it's cut and there's no buds above you know like three or four inches higher than, than the, the highest shoot it'll still be alive yeah. up there yeah it's which insane. Is, yeah. It's weird it's insane yeah I, I think with conifers the thing is because with sap flowing trees they can redirect that sap pretty much anywhere you know mm -hmm. around the wound site but with conifers you know, when we, when we bend a conifer branch, like on the underside of the bend, we've got all the compressed cells. And then on the outside of the bend, we've got all the torn cells. So when we bend a juniper branch, it can still get, you know, water and nutrients around on the compressed mm -hmm. side because the cells are all compressed. But on the back side where they're all torn, it kind of slows down production. But I guess if we wedge cut 
on the compressed side and take out the cambium and then bend and tear the backside. Now we're left mm. with nothing. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's what it is, but to me that's probably why that technique doesn't work so well on those types of trees. And I guess that's how you can tell if a wedge cut's going to work or not. It's, I guess, try it on material you don't really love first. <laughs> yeah. How's y'all international, like, shipping and as far as, like, importing, like, importing trees from, like, Japan or the United States or anything like that? Europe? It's non-existent. No. Mm. So, so we can't – we can bring in – Certain thing we can bring in seeds and fertilizers and things can't bring in plant material at all, and but even even the seeds and the like the fertilizers they're they're crazy because like we obviously we run a bonsai nursery here and I've got other friends who run bonsai nurseries and I've tried to bring in bio gold here, um, you know the Japanese fertilizer. Oh yeah, the best. Um, and when I reached out to our department of agriculture and that. They were like, oh, yeah, here's the form. You fill it out. Um, and they want all these kind of um, spec sheets from the manufacturer and all that kind of stuff, which is if, if the company doesn't have some kind of translation or English-speaking person, that makes it super difficult. And then on top of that, you know, the, the form that you fill out is just crazy. And then it's $400 to hand them that form. And if there's a mistake... If there's a mistake on there, they don't just hand you the form back and say, can you fix that? They hand you a brand new one. And then if you hand them that one filled out, they ask for another $400. So, so. <laughs> it, it, and then once the, once the shipment comes in, if the exporter hasn't done everything properly, if there's not the paperwork on the outside of the, the, con- the container, if it hasn't been sprayed in a certain way, everything like that, then they take that shipment, they burn it, and they send you the bill to do so. So it's not even worth trying to... Man, they really... Well, I mean, that's that's whole part of, like, uh, how we can't ship... We got to really, really be on top of our paperwork for shipping to California. Yeah, California is pretty uh, strict. Because they... I mean, that... Not that strict. It's understandable, though, man, bringing in diseases or trees that definitely would affect the environment that way um but i mean i i I get it man that sucks though that really does but uh yeah you gotta well even even within australia itself it's strict so western australia and tasmania we can't send anything to there in terms of plant material so if i send out a bonsai tree i can't send to anybody in western australia or tasmania um Mm. because it, it won't get through customs and the crazy thing is, is we have bonsai shows over here, and if somebody from Western Australia brings a tree to show in the show over here, they can't take it back. It now lives here. What? So is that ever like an instance where like, I'm sure it's happened. I'm, it's obviously happened before. Like somebody comes over and they're like, man, I, I this is my first time showing my favorite bonsai tree and they get across the line. I'm sure that's happened before, huh? They're just like, time uh, to move. Not to get a move. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, part ways of the tree. I got to move to uh, Eastern Australia. God, man, I didn't know it was like that. But yeah, it, it, it's pretty crazy. And um, yeah, so as I said, with importing, everything's got to be spick and span, and it, they don't make it easy, man. Like the understanding of all this stuff is just like 
I do bonsai. I don't do bureaucratic stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's half the struggle right there. I mean, running the nursery and then having to put up with all that kind of stuff. I mean, so that puts that puts you in a pretty good position. Then, I mean, being one of the few bonsai nurseries where you're at, then. Yeah, well, I mean, they're starting to pop up here and there and everywhere um, okay. as the art as the art you know gets bigger. But we are. I mean, at this point, we're one of the bigger online stores. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, we're shipping tools and all that other stuff. We can ship that all around Australia, no problem. So we have a lot of customers in Western Australia that buy tools and um, turntables, pots, and all that kind of stuff. We can send inorganic soils to them, so like mm-hmm. Akadama and pumice and stuff. Yeah, that was my other question because um, you had I heard you say it way early in the conversation about putting your bald cypress in Akadama. Do you guys, are you guys one of the, the advocates for Akadama where y'all are at? Like it's Akadama or no, or no go, or as far as development trees, I know, like uh, trees that are going into refinement. Well, it really depends. This is the problem, you know, I try to teach beginners and stuff, you know, they hear about Akadama and how magical it is. And it really is. It's a magical substrate, yeah, but it's great. you've got to learn what Akadama does and why it does it and what it's good for and what it's not good for. And all this kind of stuff, you've really got to be able to calculate your soil mixes. And um, because, you know, I, I've heard people, you know, arguing on Facebook and stuff that um, I, I've even been accused of it. I, I had one bloke that told me the only reason I advocate for Akadama is because I sell it. Right? <laughs> what a slap in and, the face. And, and he, liter- he literally told people on Facebook that I don't use Akadama in any of my trees. And I don't see one of my trees out there in a bonsai pot that doesn't have Akadama in it. So I'm not sure where that came. (laughs) I'm not sure where that came from. But for us, some of my trees go in 100% Akadama. Um, So what what tells me that a tree can go in 100% Akadama is if it can be repotted every two years. Um, So obviously conifers are a no go for 100% Akadama. but Australian natives, yes. Um, deciduous material like maples, yes. And the reason that we go 100% Akadama is because of the high moisture retaining content yeah. and two, the um, cation exchange capacity for, for Akadama. So, but something that I actually learned last night from a guy that's been doing bonsai for 46 years is he said that Akadama is naturally um, acidic. So, mm-hmm. um, you need, you need to kind of watch that with trees that are in a hundred percent Akadama, but for, for our conifers, we'll use Akadama as well, but I usually mix that with Kiryu and, um, pumice yeah. and just depending on the trees, how dry or wet they like to be, we adjust that. And then obviously the, the repotting cycle of a tree, if it's a conifer and it's looking more on a five-year cycle, then more pumice and kiddiyu will get thrown in the mix than Akadama. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that that it's uh, it's over there for sure. Because I mean, there's some parts of the world that I've seen people practice bonsai where soil content is not much of a thing that they worry about. Um, so that's really cool that you guys are you have access to that, and that's is that something that obviously y'all getting it from. That's one thing y'all can get from Japan, right? 
Yeah, because it's inorganic, yeah. so it's not something. It's mm-hmm. basically organic stuff that Australia worries about, like plants and fertilize, like organic fertilizers um, and <laughs> organic soils, but stuff that can worry. have organisms living in it. Yeah, they, but they won't worry about something like akadama that's been mined out of the earth over in Japan. But you know, teach his own, I guess. Yeah, but. Uh, in terms of having organisms live in it, it's a very low, very low chance of that happening. Yeah, yeah. Get totally good yeah. that. But awesome, man. But yeah, it's still something that we're struggling here with in Australia because we haven't had these inorganic substrates for a long time and it's, it's, it's really a battle. Like I mentioned before, the internet's a funny place, especially when it comes to talking about um, bonsai because... You've got all these people from all different parts of the world that practice bonsai in a different way, depending on what their environment is. And then you've got all these people that have access to different things and they don't have access to different things and then things are priced differently. Like I I heard somebody mention the other day that Akadama in the States was priced at like $49 a bag or something mm. and nearly fell off my chair. Yeah, We sell it for $29 a bag here and our dollar is crap compared to yours. <laughs> Y'all closer to Japan, but it's, like it's I, easier I, I don't if you know. get it, yeah. But you know, it, it's hard because a lot of people out there, you know, argue the fact that Akadama is no good just because it's expensive, and you know, yeah. it, it makes me cringe yeah. anytime I see somebody advocating for organic soil in a bonsai pot, and it's just like, oh, you've got no control over your fertilizer. You're going to have a yeah. water table, poor drainage. Thick elongated roots, thick elongated growth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you dude, dude, I get it. I preach that kind of stuff. And if I'm not preaching to people that they can't keep their bonsai tree on their desk in their office, I'm preaching to the next person that's trying to get to that next step with their bonsai. Once they've got past the growing phase and everything's fine and dandy and they've got like a nice trunk and they've got developed branches and they're like, all right, well, why would I even use this soil? You know, like, why would I use these inorganic uh, particles? So, and I guess here it's like, uh, I don't even, Mark's, Mark, you're using like a lot of pine bark and stuff in years. Um, pine bark and hayite. And hayite. And it's yeah. mostly because of availability and yeah. price. We've got another particle here that I think is, like he just said, it's called hayite. Um, I know y'all are not going to have that or be familiar with that, but that's like another kind of clay particle that's been harvested. But then it gets, uh, then they fire it. Like they actually fire yeah, it's it. It's hard. It, it yeah. doesn't really break down at all. Uh, like Akadama break down, like the roots are going in a little things and a yeah. break and, it, you know, you got a party going on in the root ball. <laughs> yeah. And we don't, I mean, uh, the hay dye doesn't really do that, which is good for. Yeah. Uh, what you call it? Uh, splitting, root splitting. And ramification. Bifurcation. Yeah, in the roots. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, it doesn't break down. And I, and I see that as a filler particle. And that's kind of one thing that you run into with a lot of people that you said like accessibility and, oh, Akadama's crap because it's too expensive. And they turn to these filler particles, which they work, but they're not going to get you that next level like Akadama does. Yeah, because there's a, there's a thing in bonsai where people, if they do something wrong and the tree survives, then that's yeah, wrong. Yeah, and it worked. So they <laughs> oh, it worked. But they don't realize what they missed out on. Like you missed out on good growth or you missed out on, you know, now the tree's not going to grow for nine months because you've really upset it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, I could preach the soil side of it all day. I'm I'm one of those people, uh, 
and bones. I, uh, I described it earlier to somebody, a customer that came in, I said, I'm kind of like the person who, uh, would be really into tires and and suspension on your vehicle. Uh, that's how I kind of look at like with bone size, like are the roots and the soil components, right? Cause otherwise yeah. you don't have a good foundation. And I'm just like thinking about, uh, being too wrapped up in that aspect, but also it's what, that's what it's mostly about. Um, especially if you want to pull off stuff like, like behind us, that, that, that Cypress forest is a slab planting. And, and I mean, it's, it's sitting in like, you know, a quarter inch of soil depth. And it's because yeah. we have, we have the, the soil and everything set up on there correctly uh, so that it can exist in that environment. Of course, the moss and the other stuff that's going on on the top really helps out too. But, um, and also the fact that the, the, the slab is a piece of wood. So the cypresses are kind of eating that up right now, but Besides the fact, yeah, uh, definitely soil roots all day long. Yeah. So before we take off, because I know you guys have got to go soon. Yep. Um, right at it. Right at the mark. Underhill bonsai. Um, do you want to just you know let the people out there know, and also um, bonsai southeast podcast. Um, yep. Let the people know all about that. Your socials and everything, so yep. they know where to find you guys. I'm gonna drop drop a plug or two. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're mostly active on Facebook at the moment. Um, as far as just letting people know generally what's up at the nursery here. So if you uh, you have a Facebook, go uh, just search Underhill Bonsai, uh, like, share any of our content. That really helps. If we go live and we're doing a live stream video, go in there and just leave a comment or two. Like the video, of course. Um, I run a a uh, monthly program called third Thursday live. Um, and it's an instructional time where I'll take something that is relative to species and time of year. And I'll go through and do like an hour or two of, uh, of instruction. For example, uh, I know this, this episode is going to come out a little later, but I'll probably be, we'll probably be in December, which is our, um, which is our winter here. Um, and we'll be doing a collection and Yamadori class um, on our third Thursday. And then, and then everything, Proceeding that we'll probably do have to do with repotting and whatnot. And then, um, and then, yeah, of course we have an Instagram page. So same name there, YouTube channel. We have some of our backlogged uh, episodes and, and maybe, uh, adding a lot more yep. to YouTube coming in the future. Yep. We've got Mark. He's uh he's kind of like our, well, he's, he does the podcast, but he's going to be doing our YouTube videos really soon here. And we'll have a lot more content going there. And then uh, yeah, of course, uh, Bonsai Southeast, I think that's the only thing that's going to kind of be flipped a little bit. You can't just look up Underhill for that. But uh, Bonsai Southeast is kind of like me and Mark's thing that we came up with uh, to help promote the outreach like we're doing right now. This is the whole purpose why we're doing it. It's awesome. Uh, check us out on Spotify, Google, or any other listening platform you got um, out there. So, But uh, you were going to say something, Mark? Oh, you were good. I think I covered it. I just um, wanted to mention a YouTube channel. Was yeah, yeah. He's, about early. That's like, this is our future project. But uh, yeah, definitely, man. And I really appreciate yeah. you reaching out to me. This has been really cool. Yeah, no problems. That, that, that's the whole reason why I started this podcast is, you know, I wanted to wanted to be able to showcase other bonsai artists around the world and, you know, be able to put them out there and create a platform for them to speak and, you know, show their work and promote themselves and whatnot. Um I think I should mention to the people that are listening to this podcast, I don't know how the schedule for these coming out is going to be, but if you jump over to the Bonsai Southeast podcast, there's going to be another episode that will carry on 
from this one. So yeah, it'll be a continuation of me, Mark, and Josh talking um, more about bonsai. I guess we will turn the tables on you and ask you more about your business and how you're doing, but that's for another time. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you guys so much for joining us today. And it's been an absolute pleasure to, you know, talk to you guys after listening to so many of your episodes. Yeah. Appreciate it. And um, I guess I'll uh, see you guys around.